Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about working with childbirth pain. What are the four components of pain? Does pain equate suffering? If the signal doesn't make it to the brain, is it pain? And how can you and your partner change that signal before it arrives? Pain specialist Julie Bonapache has answers. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guided meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive pregnant or new moms. Reduce your stress, reduce your complications, and improve your connection to your baby and partner. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com slash birthful. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Megan Othling, a birth doula in Albuquerque who is all about offering women the information and support they need to make their own empowered birth choices. Learn more at womanofvalorbirth.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you so, so, so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, please do take a few minutes to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook or on Google, or even just tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Help me out. <laughs> it really does help. So thank you. All right. You may have looked at the episode title today and wondered what the heck is up with the word renewed in parentheses next to the title. Well, for a while now, I've been getting a lot of messages asking me to do topics that I've already covered. I understand that with three years of Birthful Podcast episodes, there are so many to get through that it's hard to keep them all straight. Plus, it's true; it truly does blow my mind how the early episodes are just as relevant today as the, as the recent ones. Also, I get that during pregnancy and postpartum, there's only so many episodes you can get through. So... All of that to say that I am going to shake things up a bit in preparation for better and bigger things to come later this year. This is what's going to happen right now, and this is why this episode has the word renewed next to it. For the next few months, I'm going to be alternating every week between a brand new episode and a renewed one. And so this renewed episode is not quite a rebroadcast since this gives me a chance to review and update show notes and the resource links contained in said show notes. And in some cases, I'll also reach out to the guest and see if they want to add anything else to the episode or update what they have available on the topic. You know, for example, somebody may have written a new book or new research may have come out since the first show show aired. So this is a renewed version of it. Now, here's the super exciting part. This will not only make the older episodes more current because the links will be updated if and, and fix anything that might be broken. It's also going to allow me a bit more time to structure and organize for the next big step for the Birthful Podcast, which is to bring you two episodes per week. Now, you may be thinking, didn't I just say that there were too many Birthful episodes to keep straight? And yes, I did. But here's the thing. Out of those two weekly episodes, one is going to be a guest interview. And then the other episode is going to be a story, whether it's a birth story, a postpartum story, a breastfeeding story, a partner story. This will also mean that you'll get stories all year long instead of just during the summer. How cool is that? So there you have it. It's going to be lots of more birthful stuff. And hopefully the stories will complement what we talk, the, the guest podcast episode. So they will complement each other. So that is what the future holds for Birthful. And in terms of timing, I am hoping to launch those two episodes a week sometime in April or May. So stay tuned for that. All right. So the episode that I've chosen for this first ever renewed episode is actually one of the most listened to Birthful episodes. It's with Julie Bonapache, and we discuss the paradigm of pain in childbirth and how women are brilliantly hardwired to work with their sensations during childbirth. Julie is a pain specialist and the main author of the Canadian Pain Management Guideline for the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. She is a researcher and childbirth educator who helps parents and healthcare professionals gain a better understanding of pain management mechanisms and techniques to work with the sensation of childbirth, which makes so much sense because, you know, birth is, and birth is intense. So here you are. Here is my talk with Julie. Julie, welcome. I'm so excited, happy to have you here today. 
Hi, Adriana. Yay. I'm glad we made this happen. And I was excited that you contacted me for that because a couple of, you know, a few episodes ago, um, I got to talk to Rhea Dumsey about the purpose of childbirth pain. And I thought this was a great segue and connection to this. It almost becomes a two-part series um, talking to you about the the way that moms, laboring moms and their partners can work with those sensations in a natural way. So what can be done about that sensation, about that pain um, to, now that we know that, that it's purposeful? So can you, you've been teaching, you've been researching a lot about uh, pain management for years and years. Can you tell us a bit about how, what you've discovered in terms of the purpose and how to work with the, the the sensations and during childbirth sure uh so adriana the um, the first big scoop that i really discovered is that the human beings and in particular women who are pregnant uh develop and have hardwired in their body two resources to help them give birth the first resource is the hormonal resource and the second one is neurophysiologic so essentially what i'm saying is that in our bodies, we have um, mechanisms that prepare us to work with the sensations of labor. And there's this um, small video on YouTube, you know, where you see these two guys, um, they, they decide, you know, that uh, women uh, complain too much about birth and they're going to go in and they're going to get con these contractions and uh, <clears throat> with um, a stimulator and uh, they're in the clinic and they're getting their contractions and they're yelling and they're throwing up and they're, they're, they're having a hard time. And when I teach midwives and healthcare providers in different countries, I show them this video and I say, well, you see, women, when they give birth uh, and you respect the physiologic process, um, they release the hormones, they produce the hormones that will reduce their sensations. But if you kickstart labor before, you induce labor before the hormones have started to do their work, you're actually doing exactly what you're doing to these men. You're creating intense, painful sensations and you're not uh, having the endogenous resource, the hormones that are protecting women, that are reducing the sensations. So the first resource that we have is that if we um, respect physiology, we let our bodies um, birth the babies, we're going to have the hormones to help us. And then there's the second resource that we have, it's neurophysiologic, and this happens in women and men, is that we've, we've uh, discovered um, in the last century, how these mechanisms work. But these are techniques that have existed for thousands of years. And these techniques and these mechanisms, what they do is they um, produce the endogenous, so the natural endorphins, the neurotransmitters that will block part of the signal. And so a lot of the work that I've done over the years has really been to teach parents how they can activate the neurophysiology that reduces pain in childbirth. So what are some ways that they can activate those, that physiology? So to activate the neurophysiology, um, uh, scientists, and uh, when I did my graduate studies, uh, I was working in a pain research lab, and the, um, the PhD, the doctor that I was working with, had put together this very comprehensive model of the three endogenous, so the three natural mechanisms that we have in the body. So one of the mechanisms is called the gate control theory, and it was elaborated by uh, a Canadian scientist, uh, Dr. Melzak, and by uh, an English scientist, Dr. Wall, in the 60s, where they discovered that when you caress or when you massage, light massage, the painful area, you'll be blocking part of the signal in the spine. So, and this reduces the message that gets to the brain. Uh, and so this is something that we all spontaneously do. So if you hit your hand uh, as you're uh, exiting the car, you'll, you'll, you'll rub your hand, the painful area, and this is gonna reduce your sensations. So this first mechanism, the gate control, can be used in any situation, whether it's acute or chronic pain. It can be used in childbirth or anywhere else. And actually what it is, is caress the painful area. And the techniques that we can use in birth is everything that has to do with massage. So light massage of the painful area can be 
lightly, gently stroking the abdomen, stroking the, uh, uh, the thighs, the lower back, whatever painful area there is. And you can do this with your fingers, you can uh, blow some air, you can vibrate, uh, you can use uh, the shower, so you just uh, put water on the painful area. When women bathe, they're also activating the gay control, or when women move. So when women are moving, they're massaging the painful area, they can be sitting on a ball. Uh, so all of these techniques will activate the gate control and block part of the message that goes to the spine. Because the, the, if we come back even to the origin of the signal, uh, you know, recently I've been, uh, we're just on the point of publishing the Canadian guideline on pain management for the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. And so it's a guideline that will be implemented in all of Canadian hospitals. And in the guideline, the first thing we say is that Pain, or what I call the sensations, are useful in birth. They help you find your tribe. They help you move. They help you know where you're at in your labor. They, uh, so they're useful. So we don't want them to disappear. We just want to work with them. So we don't want to eliminate. We want to work with them. The second thing is, I'm not sure. I've been doing a lot of thinking and research on this. There is no lesion per, per se to explain pain in childbirth. So we need to even be thinking about that first signal. Um, it, it, for example, if I burn my hand, then there is a lesion, there's, there's, there's an injury. This injury will be telling me, take care of your hand. Now put some cold water on it, uh, make sure that, you, uh, that you, you keep it clean, watch out for infection. So the pain is telling me some, something. But if you look at childbirth, where is the lesion? There is no lesion. So when the cervix dilates, when the baby descends, there is no lesion. We're not breaking bones. We're not tearing tissue. So you have to think about why is it so painful? Why do women, the first word that comes to mind when they think about birth is, it's going to be painful. I'm going to pay. It's going to be hard, right? Even in the Bible, we talk about, about how important pain is going to be in childbirth. So I think that there's a big, huge conditioning that we have. We know that fear uh, increases tension. So fear will increase tension, which will increase pain. And if you just think about any torture tactics that are used in countries where we torture people, so what they do is they start torturing them mentally. They'll expose the person mentally to the situation. And these people already start suffering, even if you haven't touched them. Well, I think it's the same thing in birth. We've been told that birthing is dangerous and it's painful and we're expecting it and we're anticipating it. And this is increasing the signal. And I think that, you know, my grandma was, uh, was born in uh, Lebanon uh, uh, at the beginning of the century of the, you know, in the 1900s. Uh, she had 11 kids, immigrated to Canada. And um, I'm pretty sure because of her religious upbringing that she was told that uh, making love would be very painful. And in the French-Canadian tradition here, we're very... Uh, um, <clears throat> were Catholics, we were told that uh, sexuality was uh, to reproduce. So there was nothing about anything having to do with, it's supposed to be fun, right? You're supposed to enjoy it. So I think that when you repeat to women that uh, having sex is painful and that it's an obligation and that you need to lay there, lay there and just do whatever you're told to do, so you're passive, you're not getting involved, you're... Um, probably not going to enjoy the experience and you're not going to lubricate and you're going to tighten up and all of this is going to create a context where you're going to be experiencing pain so you're confirming what you've been taught making love is dang is dangerous or is is not supposed to be fun and i think that we we're still with that culture we bought into the whole concept that childbirth is painful the same way that we bought into the concept that making love was painful a hundred years ago and that we're not meant to enjoy it. And I think that there's a huge paradigm shift that we need to do in first in conditioning women and saying, look, it doesn't need to be painful. 
But there are a couple of things that you really need to prepare for. Uh, the first thing is going to be to reboot your uh, your whole system, because probably young women who are giving birth today, uh, their mothers have given birth with an epidural. So their mothers are probably saying, well, you know, why would you want to suffer? You know, take the epidural. But uh, we need to be really clear on this. There are a lot of consequences related to the epidural. And, you know, I teach in France a lot and uh, I hear healthcare providers say all the time that there are absolutely no consequences to using drugs and epidurals and childbirth. And I'm sorry, but this information is totally false. We have important meta-analysis from the Cochrane database that show that when women have epidurals, they have higher rates of instrumental deliveries, so more forceps, more um, vacuum extractions, more lesions to the perineum, longer births, more difficulty. We're getting more and more evidence now that women are having difficulty breastfeeding after. And this is all related to how the epidural will impact the hormones, the natural hormones that women produce in child, in pregnancy and in childbirth, especially in childbirth. So reducing uh, the signals, the, the sensations with the epidural, it will reduce the endorphins, it will have an impact on natural oxytocin. That's why you need to augment it uh, with the chemical oxytocin, and then that's going to have an impact on the prolactin. So what I'm trying to say here is that there are a whole bunch of things that we're, we're doing now that are messing with physiology, that are increasing the painful signal, that are disrupting the natural course of labor and delivery, and that are impacting both the women and the babies. And I think that it's really important that we address this because we're even there's a recent study that was published uh, by a Canadian researcher that demonstrated that women who use uh, oxytocin, synthetic oxytocin during childbirth are more depressed in the postpartum period. So there are more postpartum depressions and this we're starting to see because the widespread use of synthetic oxytocin uh, is not only does it increase pain because it inhibits the natural hormone oxytocin, mm. but also has an impact on what happens after birth, both for the babies and the mother. Yeah, so I think that we need to address this. Absolutely. And Michelle O'Donnell has a wonderful book um, that it talks about the, now I can't remember the name. It's about the survival of the human species or the future of the mm -hmm. Homo sapiens. And mm -hmm. it, he clearly, he talk, goes into depth into talking about how that disruption of the oxytocin pattern and release during childbirth, is it affecting our whole human species capacity for empathy? And so it, it can, yeah, it's not just a little thing that happens during birth. It has long lasting and very deeply affecting, you know, consequences. Exactly. Um, Exactly. So, yes. And, and I, I think one of the things, so you you said a lot in there and I want to unpack a bit of, of the things that you brought up. The distinction between pain or intense sensation and suffering. I mm -hmm. think we need to talk a little bit more about that because we, it, and it goes back to have we already bought into the idea that pain hurts and so we are afraid of it and anxious and then we bring that tension in and then it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. but it's it, physiologically your body's there it has all these mechanisms to support a, a, a process that sure a, a, there's a big big muscle doing a lot of hard work but nothing is being broken or nothing is wrong so how can we switch that mindset and not bring suffering into mm -hmm. the birth process exactly that's a that's a super question that we actually also addressed in the guideline and um so imagine that you have four circles and these four circles they um they have uh, a joining point in the middle so the four circles are the four components of of pain so we know that there are at least four components to pain these four circles, they can exist um, independently. So you can have one component that's there and not the other three, or you can have all four components that come together. So, so imagine that the first component is the lesion. Okay, so that's one part of a painful signal. The second part is the intensity of the pain. 
The third part is the unpleasantness of the pain. And the fourth part is the behavior. Okay? So let's say uh, I squeeze my fingers as I go out of the, the door. And so I look at all four components. The, the fact that I squeeze my fingers, this creates the uh, nociception. So it creates the lesion. And I might be saying, oh, wow, that really hurts. It's intense. So I can feel that it's throbbing in my fingers. And so that's the intense component that's there. And then maybe this is really disturbing me. I'm trying to concentrate and I can feel this, this unpleasantness in my fingers and it's stopping me from concentrating. So the, the signal can be perceived as being unpleasant. And then maybe I'm yelling or I'm swearing or I'm crying. And that's the fourth component, which is the behavior. Okay. So what we need to understand is that um, there are situations where you don't have a lesion and yet you can say it's very intense, unpleasant, and I'm, I'm having a behavior. For example, if you're, you're, um, uh, you lose a loved one, okay, so a loved one translates, dies, and you have no lesion per se, but you're going to say it's very, I'm, I'm experiencing pain, it's very intense, it's unpleasant, and you're crying. So you see that this, this is perceived as pain, it's intense, unpleasant, and behavior, but there's no lesion. You understand? Mm -hmm. So where does suffering come in? Suffering is the component that's described as unpleasantness. All right. So the unpleasantness is the motivational, emotional. It's the emotional aspect of pain. And that is translated in the uh, pain unpleasantness component. So, for example, you can have a situation that's not intense, but can be very unpleasant. And the, if it's very unpleasant, this can lead to suffering. Or you can have a situation that's very intense, but it's not unpleasant. For example, if you ask women in childbirth what the intensity of their signal is, they'll say it's a lot more intense than unpleasant. So it's very strong, the signal, but it's not perceived as being unpleasant. And um, you take a cancer patient, for example. So they'll say maybe they'll be relieved by, uh, by the, you know, the treatment that they're getting. But whenever they have a sensation, it's very unpleasant because they know that this is going to finish with something, um, you know, with death probably, right? If they're in a terminal situation. So what I, when I teach healthcare providers, what I tell them is, do you think that the epidural will reduce suffering? Well, the answer is no, because it's not because women don't feel anything that they won't be suffering. So the suffering component is feeling loved, cared for, and supported. And you can have the epidural, it's going to reduce the intensity of pain because it reduces the signal that goes to the brain. But you leave a woman by herself, you know, partners start texting, uh, you know, healthcare providers don't don't take care of the woman anymore. She's got an epidural, so she's not suffering. So goodbye, I'm going to do something else, right? So if this happens, this can create suffering because this woman doesn't feel her body. Maybe she's feeling that she's alone. Maybe she's scared. Maybe she doesn't understand what's going on with the baby. This can lead to suffering. So suffering is the psychological component and um, you know, there are techniques that we use, for example, the emotional freedom technique that we use in my program, where we say, don't medicalize emotions. So if this woman is experiencing suffering, suffering is from the emotional state, the psychological state, and this can be best addressed with caring and loving. So you remember when we talked at first, we talked about the endogenous mechanisms that we have. So we talked about the gate control mechanism, which is caressing the painful area. I'm sure that you know all of this, but the second mechanism is called focusing or control of the mind. And then this mechanism, it has everything to do with deviating your attention. So if you look at all the techniques that have to do with deviating the attention, there's uh, breathing, because when you're breathing, you're putting your attention somewhere else, not on, oh, I'm living this, I'm so unhappy, and it's so difficult. So you're focusing your attention somewhere else. Uh, when you're breathing, uh, smelling different odors. So if you're smelling something that's pleasant, it's going to reduce your signal. 
uh, it can be also whatever you think in your mind. So meditation, uh, hypnosis, self-hypnosis, concentration. Uh, so the thoughts that you have in your head will reduce the sensation by releasing endorphins because we have this ability to produce the neurotransmitter, the endorphins that reduce the signal. But the biggest technique in this mechanism is support. So the research team that I work with, we uh, published uh, a meta-analysis in birth uh, in 2014 where we separated all of the techniques. So there's the gate control, the control of the mind, and the third mechanism. The third mechanism, which is creating a second pain. So what this uh, third mechanism does is that if you create a second pain, when you're experiencing a first painful signal, the, the second signal will uh, arrive at the brain. The brain will want to understand the nature of the second signal. So the brain releases this end or these endorphins all over the body, except in the second pain. And the purpose really is for the brain to understand the nature of the second pain and see if this is a threat. So if you look in the past, uh, if you were living in the Greek, um, ancient Greece, and uh, you'd go to the physician and you'd say, oh, I have this terrible headache and, you know, I need, I need to find a solution. I, I'm, I'm suffering here. It's very painful and it's unpleasant. Then the physician had in his office um, an aquarium with electrical eels. And they tell you, well, you're going to put your arm in the aquarium. So the patient would put his arm or her arm in the aquarium and then would uh, get an electrical shock and would say, wow, that was really painful. And then the physician, the physician would ask, oh, so how's the pain in your head? And he'd be relieved from the pain in his head. Now he'd have a sore arm, but he came for a, for a headache. So uh, he'd be relieved because of the high doses of endorphins that are released with the second pain. So this is also a really neat mechanism that we teach partners, that they can create a second painful stimulation during a rush or during a contraction. And for example, in Northern Africa, traditional Algerian women, what they do is they pick up a rock, you know, a small rock, and they put it in their hand. And they'd, uh, during a contraction, they'd squeeze the rock. So by squeezing the rock, they create a second pain in their hand that would reduce the first pain. Another way of doing this is uh, having a bucket of water with ice inside. So, you know, really, really cold water. And as you're experiencing a rush, if it becomes very intense, you put your hand or any part of your body in the cold water. And this will create a second painful stimulation, which will reduce the first. Uh, another way that healthcare providers can do is to inject, uh, we teach them how to inject sterile water uh, in the lower back. So right in the, in the fine layers of the skin, it creates a little bit of a, uh, a bump at the back, on the back. And this uh, creates a burning sensation that lasts about 20, 30 seconds. And scientifically, it's been demonstrated to reduce pain for up to two hours. Mm. So and if you look at these three mechanisms, uh, they're hardwired in our body. We just need to learn how to activate them. Yeah, to tap into it. And I really, what my favorite part about all this is that you know, there's tons of research to back up, back up how these things work. But the fact that they are so incredibly simple. And yeah, it's things that we do almost instinctive, instinctively, like, you know, I know that every time my daughter, she comes because she hit herself, the first thing I do is rub her like if she hit her arm, I'll rub her arm. Exactly. And that feels better, right? And I do it to myself, too. Like, these are things that we do unconsciously almost in our day-to-day -day <laughs> basis and i love the the idea of being mi of mindfully bringing it into birth so that you can be more you can't control the situation but you can you can control what what you do about it what what, yeah, exactly. what, what you're presented yeah exactly because you see uh if you look at it from a neurophysiologic point of view pain is not pain until it's uh, perceived by the brain. So the signal, let's say you uh, you drop something on your foot, uh, 
the signal will go to the brain, but it's until it's reached the brain, it's not pain. It's only pain once the brain decides it's pain. So it gives you a huge opportunity to change the signal before it gets to the brain. So if you caress the painful area, you'll be blocking part of the message in the spine. If you think about something pleasant, or if someone holds you in their arms, like when you're caressing your, your, your child, right? So you're, you're uh, rubbing the sore, but you're also providing comfort. The comfort will act by um, releasing endorphins because of this child feeling cared for or feeling supported or safe. And what you could do also is create a second pain and the second pain would release the endorphins and then would reduce the first sensation. So my daughter, um, she's never had analgesia when she goes to the dentist, and nor do I, not in the last three years. So what we do is even when we get, um, you know, we get a tooth filled uh, and they, they need to drill and, you know, we kind of don't feel it's super comfortable because it's close to the nerve. Well, you can just activate all of the mechanisms. So, of course, you can't rub the tooth because, you know, the dentist is drilling in your tooth. I wouldn't tooth. be very happy, yeah. <laughs> so that, that doesn't really work. But you can use the two other mechanisms. So while they're drilling, you need to mentally put yourself in a state, a relaxed state. So you relax your tongue, you relax your buttocks. And that in birth is really important that you relax. So you relax the tongue, relax the buttocks, the perineum. And then... You exhale, just exhale and imagine something loving happening. So I, I, I imagine that I'm sending little hearts to my dentist and I'm not saying, oh, well, you're such a bad person and you're, you're hurting me. I'm saying, you know, I'm doing, you're doing this to help me. Thank you, all my gratitude. And I'm, I'm mentally Im imagining something positive. And at the same time, I'll be creating a second pain. So I'll, I'll, I teach uh, how to activate acupressure points, which are points that will facilitate labor. So there are points in the foot, in the hand, in the back, in different different points. But you could just create a second pain anywhere, and this would relieve uh, the sensations of this intervention. Mm, and I've had moms like you know press the the point right between their thumb and first finger on that that fleshy part and yeah. they which is you know an acupressure point for for sensation yeah. for pain and they love the fact that they can do it themselves exactly. as well you know it's that self-efficacy of like i am going to distract this and i am going to focus differently so it's really lovely julie, exactly julie yeah. you, and a couple of times so, so you brought up the um, how suffering is the unpleasant part and there's such an um, the emotional aspect of pain and how partners can really help with that aspect. And you also mentioned the importance of support to help you, you know, divert the attention and focus on something else. So what I would love to do, we're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, I'd like, to, you know, for us to talk more about that partner component to help with, with the sensations. Mighty Ones, want to know my solution for resetting my nervous system? It's meditation. But you might be asking, what is so great about resetting your nervous system? Well, if your nervous system spends more time in high alert and doesn't get back to a baseline often, then your body is in constant state of stress, which is of course not healthy. I have quite a bit of sustained stress in my life, and so I find that meditating is a super easy way to make sure I break up those stress signals. You may be thinking, that sounds great, but I have no time to meditate. The good news is that if you have 10 minutes, then you have time to meditate, and it becomes even easier when you use a meditation app like Expectful. I have tried other meditation apps, and I really like how the Expectful app is designed to fulfill your pregnant or new parent needs by focusing on whatever you need at that moment. Whether it's better sleep, connection with baby and partner, embracing your identity, lessening stress, dealing with uncertainty, Expectful makes it super easy for you. Plus, I really love the voice of the person who reads the meditations. Go to expectful.com slash birthful to sign up for their free two-week trial and check it out for yourself. Don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. And we're back and I'm talking to Julie Bonapachi. I, I hope I said that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Yay. Um, and so we're talking about what to do with the birth, the, the sensations of childbirth. And 
let's explore. I know this is a really big part of what you teach of the importance of the partner support to help with the process of labor. Can can you talk about that? Okay, so the um, the first thing that we need to know is that why I, I find the partner so important is that I was a family mediator negotiating divorces for over a decade in Canada. And this process is free and parents, they come when they're uh, divorcing and the purpose is to reduce the uh, consequences on the children of a divorce. So for years, I had parents come and would discuss with them and see how the problems actually built, where they came from and how they how they came to part and not want to be a couple anymore. And I was so surprised to discover that most of the time it was related to the birth of a child. So birthing a baby is a very intense process. It changes our lives. And uh, when I asked women, what's going on? You know, what happened when these tensions began? What, what's, what, what's your story? And the women would tell me, well, you know, I was feeling feeling so overwhelmed. There's so much to do and so many changes in my body and my emotions and, and the baby's needs and taking care of the children and providing for the home and I'm working and I'm doing all of this and kind of feel like the, my partner is just a burden. I just have to provide for him also. And what I'd hear from men is that women weren't affectionate anymore. That is, you know, sexually interested and that they, um, they had lost that connection. They felt isolated. They felt neglected, almost rejected uh, with the birth of the children. And um, that's why, for me, the importance of encouraging the father, the partner to participate early on in pregnancy um, builds the tools that they need to be close, to continue to be intimate, to continue to communicate, to continue to work together. And, you know, when you go through a really hard episode in life or something that's really intense and that you're doing that together, the, the strategies that you develop together, the work that you've done together brings you closer to that person. So I don't want the laboring woman to fall in love with the midwife or to fall in love with the obstetrician. I mean, what use, how useful is that after birth, right? So what you want is that these hormones and this intensity of the event brings the couple closer together and that women say after birth good thing you were there good thing you were there because i could i could fall back on you i could rely on you i could lean on you and fathers would say and still say you know i felt so useful i felt i really made a difference here so i knew what to do i knew how to occupy my space and I've been doing a lot of work, you know, with uh, Kim Anami, who's a sexual coach, and she talks about a notion that's called polarity. And I think that polarity uh, really plays an important role in having sexuality that's, um, uh, that helps us deepen our, uh, our intimacy. And this polarity concept, what it is, is exactly what I've been teaching in birth, which is... Women need to be women and men need to be men in birth. So women, we need to let go, to surrender, to be vulnerable, to accept, to release, to let go. So it's the, it's the yin, it's the, it's the gentle, the feminine, the intuitive, the, the instinctual uh, part of us that we need to activate to give birth. We need to surrender. And men... What I teach men to do in birth is to stand up and protect the women. So do the caveman, do the Cro-Magnon job that you would have done 100,000 years ago, which was to protect the laboring woman because uh, a woman who's in labor is very vulnerable. I mean, she can get attacked by tigers, by snakes, you know, by any, uh, and she, she can't fight. It's not a time where she needs to fight. It's a time where she needs to surrender. So you be the protector of the zone. You be the strong person that she can fall back on, that she can rely on, that she trusts. And that's why, imagine, if you have this, this woman who can surrender, who can let go, who can trust her partner because he's occupying the space, because he's doing it, because he knows how to how to how to be strong. 
and she's going to admire him for doing that. And when the man sees that he's useful, that he knows that he's, he's, he can occupy that space, it has such a great impact on, on his feeling about himself and also him seeing his woman, you know, being able to do this miraculous thing, which is to give birth. So it creates this bond. And that was the purpose of my program always was to strengthen the bond. And now we even have the science behind this because uh, for years I knew that partners who participated in pregnancy and in birth had uh, better um, relations with their babies and, you know, with the, with the children. And you can see this even in postpartum. Let's say there's a woman who's, who's got a cesarean. She's had a cesarean and for some reason, uh, which is uh, <clears throat> usually not acceptable, but for some reason she can't be in skin to skin with her baby. And the father is the one who's doing the skin to skin. This father will have a different relation with with his child than he would have if he hadn't done the skin to skin. And you see it even if they've had on their, on their second, third child. They know the you talk to men and they'll say, I have a bond with my second child that I was skin to skin uh, with uh, that is very different. And that's why what I recommend in postpartum, I tell people all the time, this is a period where you should be naked all three of you together so it's a period to be skin to skin so if anyone wants to help you your mother your mother-in-law get them to be your faithful slaves so they can prepare the meals they can clean the house do the laundry and you guys just be horizontal for a couple of days to make sure that you get all of the hormones kicking in that you get the bonding that you get the intimacy you need to help the breastfeeding and the attachment between the mom, the dad, and the baby. So it's it's really protecting the environment. So that's the part about the partner, right? So how do you get, you know, how do you how do you teach a man? You can tell a guy, uh, and I'm talking about guys, but this can also be a partner, a woman partner, right? I was going to ask you about that. That if it, yeah. you know the role just trans can translate just as well, sure. yeah, sure. to gender roles, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the the partner, uh, how do you how do you involve the partner? Because you can say, oh, the partner, you need to be involved, right? So that's theory. But how do you actually materialize that? How do you put that into practice? So the the easiest mechanism that I found was to teach the partners how to help women work with their sensations. So that's why I teach the partner how to create all of the light massages, how to help the women move and how to uh, create the second pain and help them feel safe. And this is, you know, because a lot of, a lot of males, they really like the hands-on part. They're not too interested by all the theory and all the cognition. They just kind of like, just give me the recipe, right? So what does it take? So what it takes is kind and loving support, and uh, it takes continuous support. So... Uh, we have all the doula studies, right? Uh, the, the studies on support that show that if the support isn't continuous, we lose the effects. So what we want is the partner to come there. And uh, in my book, I have this huge list for partners, which is twice the list for mothers. And the partner's list is bring everything you need to be comfortable for yourself and for your partner. So it's stuff to eat. Uh, close to change because imagine that you might be there for 24 36 hours so if you need you have contact lenses you might want to bring some glasses bring something you know that 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 will make you comfortable and because uh what we're need going to need you to do is be there full time and it's not oh i'm going to go smoke a cigarette outside uh, every hour so that we're going to lose the effects so in support for support to be efficient it really needs to be continuous and loving so if we, um, if we look at the, so that's the partner part, right? Mm -hmm. And if we look at the scientific evidence that we have to, to um, validate these mechanisms, uh, my colleagues and I, we published in 2014 the meta-analysis in the birth. And what this meta-analysis showed was we, um, we took all of the natural techniques to reduce pain. And we have... Uh, we don't have a large amount of studies in non-pharmacological 
uh, mechanism, uh, techniques because no one wants to finance natural stuff, right? Because you can't, no one makes money off natural stuff. So to find high quality randomized controlled trials is quite a challenge. Uh, but um, what I suggested uh, to our research team is that we put together the techniques according to the mechanism. So we'll put together all the techniques that have to do with the gate control, which is caressing the zone. So we put there uh, bathing and water and massage and moving. Those were part of that mechanism. And then we put together all the techniques that had to do with creating a second pain. So that was uh, using ice and using sterile water injections and painful massages, acupuncture, acupressure. And then we put together the techniques that had to do with controlling the mind. So, uh, meditation, contemplation, support, relaxation, breathing, all of those techniques fit in there. And what we demonstrated in this research, which was a huge scoop, is that if you want to reduce pain, the better techniques would be the gate control and creating a second pain. But it doesn't have any outcome on cesareans, on instrumental deliveries, on... Uh, on um, satisfaction on the baby's health. But if you were to use the techniques that have to do with control of the mind, which is essentially women being in a good emotional state, then you reduce cesareans. So this is big. What this means is that you won't reduce pain all that much. Only about 10% you'd reduce the epidural rate, but you'd reduce all medical interventions. So basically what we're saying is we need to activate all mechanisms. But the most important mechanism is that women feel safe and protected. So that's why we need to rethink the way we birth our babies. So does the environment where we birth our babies make us feel safe? And actually we, we talked about this huh, before the interview. And we talked about the setting. Well, you know the NICE guideline, the guidelines for the UK, they've just been published recently. And what the government says is women should give birth at home. Healthcare providers advise women who've given birth before that they are safer giving birth at home and advise women who give birth for the first time that there's a slightly higher risk for the baby if they give birth at home, but it's not a significant risk. So you have a government body saying that it's safer to give birth at home. Now, why do you think that that's that way? Well, so, it, you know, it, like we were talking before we started the interview, it, the, the mom needs to, be feel, to feel safe so that all those hormones flow and that, you know, the sensations are less intense and she is able to go to that Zen place that you mentioned or labor land where birth happens when she can get because you've said this before you birth with your body not with your mind so the, you got to get out of your mind in order to just let your body do the work unfortunately the systems that we have in place of birthing in a hospital and you know 99% of US women do that that is not supportive to the physiological process of birth because moms don't feel safe and warm and cozy and supported and protected necessarily in a bright room filled with technology and that distracts them and it's constantly measuring and prodding instead of letting them go physiologically deep and let go. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So because um, the mainstream movement, even here in Canada, uh, the, in Quebec, we have midwives and they only attend to 3% of births, which is um, not a significant percentage, right? So because a lot of women are birthing in hospitals, then that means that uh, we need to provide tools that will help parents release the good hormones and be able to activate their mechanisms. So if we were to say, okay, well, 99% of US women give birth in hospitals, so how can we make their birthing in hospitals better? So there are a couple of strategies that I would suggest. The first thing is, read up on your rights. Read up on your rights and look to the evidence, the scientific evidence, because as I mentioned before, there are a lot of procedures that are routine and that will increase pain. So this can be, as you mentioned, a room that is very well lit with uh, a clock. 
you're looking at the clock, it's going to stimulate your mind and it's not going to induce you to uh, go into your body and feel the sensations. It can be the smells, it can be being disturbed a lot. All of this will increase the signal. It can be not feeling private. Um, so uh, it can be uh, having synthetic oxytocin and not wearing your clothes. So let's turn all of that around and make it safer. So how could you do this? I would suggest that you first find an environment that's as close as possible to your values. Don't surrender your power to people. Grab it back, take it back. So that means imagine that you're buying a car. Would you go to the dealer and say, okay, I need to buy a car, take care of it. Okay, find the car I need. You'd say, well, you know, oh, well, I think you should get a Jetta. And you're like, well, well, I have four kids. I can't fit four kids in a Jetta, right? So if you would never surrender your power to the, to the salesman. You'd say, look, these are my needs. I travel a lot. I have a lot of kids. So I need a car that doesn't uh, uh, use up too much gas and I need a lot of space. How is it that in birth we surrender? Oh, you're the professional. You should know better. So take care of it. So we surrender our power and we don't know our options. And as my friend Pascali Bonaro Debra says, if you don't know your options, you don't have any options, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to get involved and to ask what's going on. How do you guys go about birth? So uh, when in our recommendations for the Society of, Society of Obstetricians, our first recommendation is non-pharmacological measures need to be implemented First, if the only solution they have to relieve pain is epidural, that means that you're not getting optimal support. You're not getting optimal treatment. So you need to find the place where you can birth with people who respect your needs and your desires. And if you're not sure about your needs and desires, start reading up, listen to the podcast, and start making an idea, a clear idea, a vision of how you want this birth to happen. So finding your tribe, I think, is really important. The second thing is learn all of the techniques that you can use to be empowered and to work with your sensations and get your support team together. So your partner, a doula, or people who will be able to protect your space. And then in the space, transform the space you know, I work in hospitals where uh, I teach and I say, okay, how many, how many bathtubs do we have? Oh, we have one for 10 rooms. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. We have scientific evidence that women, that shows that women are uh, experiencing better births. They're more satisfied. They're relieved. They're feeling a lot better when they're, when they're in the bath, at least during the process of labor. And even during delivery, but I know that's a whole big issue in the U.S. for a lot of uh, hospitals. Yeah. But we know that there's there's definitely scientific evidence to support to support bathing uh, to reduce sensations. And you have one bath for ten rooms. So what is this? It's impossible. You're going to ask a woman to come in to come out. You need to clean, disinfect. It's going to take you 15 minutes to fill the bath, 20 minutes to clean it. She's in it. It's it's that doesn't work. So I tell parents, well, you know what, if they don't have a bath in the rooms, why don't you bring your own bath? So there is, uh, you know, the baths that are portable that cost about $200 that you can buy. You bring it there, you inflate it. Imagine a beautiful job for the partner to do. Inflates the bath, fills it up with a, a hose that's connected to the, uh, to the sink. And it's, well, there you have your portable bath. And you know, the head of the Department of Obstetrics and at the University Hospital here said, oh, my God, I can't believe you wrote that in your book. And I'm like, well, do you expect us to wait, to wait until all of the birthing facilities have baths? If it's a scientifically demonstrated process, then let's get our power back and do it. It doesn't cost you guys anything. I'm not expecting you guys to bring all of the, you know, the, the hospital to provide everything, but I'm going to take care of it. If you're not taking care of it, I'll take care of it. And you see, so uh, I'd say to parents, well, you know, if Christmas lights uh, help you feel more uh, cozy, 
or having candles, you know, not the the real candles because of the uh, the fire hazard, but you know the candles that you can operate with small batteries, mm-hmm. and that makes you feel cozy. Create that cozy environment, and the environment, as Michelle Audin and Sarah Buckley have so well demonstrated, it needs to be something that's close to what you would feel comfortable for making love. Because the hormones are the same when you make love and when you give birth. So if you're feeling safe when you're giving, you're, you're making love, you're producing the hormones, the good hormones, and it's the same thing in birth. So we should have, you know, the possibility to uh, write on the door, you know, there's an important process going on. We have a poster that we've developed that says, you know, I'm working with my sensations, please, you know, continue working with us, respect our space, uh, you know, meaning don't walk in. I don't want the guy who's emptying the garbage to come in and the person who's delivering the food to come in. Just, you know, like this is a private setting. It's our ceremony that's going on here. So treat it as a sacred event. And all of this will help create a more um, uh, a more uh, conducive uh, environment for the hormones. And then there's the whole sexual part that we really need to get into. I think that if we start honing into practicing giving birth while we're having sex. And what I mean is that, you know, we know that there's a lot of erectile tissue in the perineum. So the, the, the erectile tissue, when you create non-painful stimulation, when you massage the perineum, when you're touching it, when you're putting warm water on it or, or just a, a cloth of warm water, uh, you're increasing the, um, the, uh, Uh, erectile tissue and by increasing the volume of erectile tissue you're making the tissue more elastic so if you're thinking about how to protect the perineum and this I tell women I tell men you have a huge interest in this you want women's perineums to be intact you know that's between the vagina and the anus you want that to be intact because postpartum a woman who has no lesion on her perineum will be far more interested quickly by sexual relations than a woman who's suffered a cut or a lesion to her perineum. So imagine if, I, if we taught men and women how they can stimulate their perineum, stimulate their vagina, and be able to activate this both for the hormones but also for, for the effect that it has on the tissue and creating the tissue more to become more elastic. Imagine what effect that would have on our births, maybe making births a lot more comfortable a lot more pleasant and a lot safer. Mm. And Anna May talks about where you're directing the blood flow. Is it directed into your thinking brain if it's up on, you know, if you're thinking the blood goes to your brain or if you're feeling more pleasure and feeling just letting go and into the sensations, then the blood flows into your perineum and to your vagina. And so, and but they can't happen at the same time. <laughs> like you're, you're either in your thinking brain or your primal brain. So the blood has to go, you need, you want to have that blood go down into, you know, those, those areas mm-hmm. exactly yeah oh, there was so much information julie in this podcast i am excited about this and i so let's do a quick recap i i um you had different ways that moms can embrace the sensations and sort of redirect it through pain modulation was by rubbing and stimulating the the painful zone. So we talked about massage and being in water or applying heat packs or cold packs or um, no, the acupressure was more more n- painful, not happy <laughs> massage, pain, you know, stimulation. So that would be or the acupressure points or um, also the ice Mm -hmm. or doing the sterile water injections which by the way it I've seen them work and they they're very intense it's 30 seconds of insane intensity and you know people like really feel this thing but then it kind of like shocks the body into not feeling you know, mm-hmm. the the sensations of the contractions of the surges. And it does last, like, especially if you're having back labor, 
it yeah. goes away for an hour and a half, two hours. That's huge. And that's why when I teach physicians and, you know, midwives and nurses how to use this, um, the importance is that they understand that it has to sting, right? But you're doing it during a rush. Often they do it between rushes, which doesn't create the same effect. So what you want to do if you're using sterile water injections is that you do the injection during the rush, right? So it reduces the rush. And for sure, it, it stings like it's like a bee. But at the same time, 20 seconds will reduce the sensations for almost an hour and a half to two hours. So I think that what we should do is should be a prerequisite to the epidural. So you want the epidural? Fine. So no problem. But we're going to do this first. And I think that, you know, we haven't spoken about the placebo, but the placebo is the ability to increase a treatment. We have scientific evidence that supports that mentally we reduce, we release endorphins when we believe in a treatment. So imagine if your healthcare provider comes and says, listen, I have this fantastic technique. It reduces pain for up to two hours. It especially reduces back pain. So I'm going to inject this. And remember, I can re-inject in 15 minutes, an hour, two hours, and we can continue doing this until birth, especially in the transition phase where it's, you know, you're kind of doubting and you're, oh my God, will I make it? And, you know, you're at seven, eight, it would be you know, uh, so much more fulfilling if you didn't uh, succumb in that period because you've gone through the hardest. And it's it's it, we know that if you're scared and if you're you're thinking you're dying, then it's a good sign, right? You're in the transition phase. So there's uh, if you have that additional support with the uh, injections and you believe in that, you can actually have a super reduction of pain so i think it's very important that we we teach parents and uh, healthcare providers how to use this mm. and because it it's just water under the skin you're not it, there's no side effects to it exactly um, question for you in terms of that since because i've seen it done in between the surges in between yeah. the rushes so not during and it's been incredibly intense for moms yeah. So much so that they're like, I don't want to do this again, ever yeah. again, not even for next birth, because it's so it's very short, but it's very intense. Um, I'm thinking if you do it during the, the, the contractions, the rushes, then the sensation might be you're focused on something else. So it might not be as intense. But my question to you is, do you know if that has any effect on the flow of hormones? Will that create anxiety and and you know sort of more of a flight or flight response well if you do it between contractions for sure it would have you know a shocking effect but th this is why you see uh, a lot of the scientific evidence the people who publish they don't understand the neurophysiologic mechanisms so i've even seen research where they've said oh it hurts women when we inject so we put an analgesic in the in the injection so it doesn't hurt so imagine you're losing the effect, mm -hmm. right? So what's really important is people understand that if you're doing it between the contractions, so the woman has her surge, so that's intense. She has her rest period and you inject her during her rest period, for sure she's going to want to smack you because it, you've just created first pain for her. You understand? Mm -hmm. So if you do it during the rush, what you're going to do is at least reduce the first, you're going to reduce the rush. So all, overall, she's going to be experiencing a lot less. Do you understand? Yeah, that makes so, total sense. So this is really important. So there's probably two mechanisms that are involved in this. Because the injections are done in the lower back, they're activating uh, acupressure points, acupuncture points that have a lot to do with creating surges and facilitating labor. So if you're doing it between contractions, you're probably activating that part, which is the acupuncture part. But if you're doing it be during a rush, you're activating both mechanisms. So you're activating the, the second pain, the DENIC system, which releases endorphins and the acupuncture points. So that's why there, we have a lot of mm, not high quality evidence with, uh, with the injections. But, uh, you know, when I teach uh, healthcare providers, I teach them how to do this. So we do this cold. Uh, we're in a class and everyone injects and get and, and receives the injection. So it's not that intense because we do it and we don't even have the hormones. But what I teach uh, women to do is when we're injecting, we create a second pain. So 
while they're, while we're injecting, that becomes the first pain, and then they breathe, they can sing, they can exhale, and then they uh, they create the second pain that will reduce this the sensation of the injection. Hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm gonna think about those more because yeah, the, there's a huge distinction of doing it in between the the rushes and during. Yes, that's a mm-hmm. huge. Thank you for that, and. So if listeners want to know more about what you're doing, follow, um, check out your programs, how can they do that, Julie? So I've developed a really nice online program uh, with videos and uh, uh, homework. It's called Birth School, and it's on my website, and it's in French and in English. Uh, I think they're um, really nice hands-on videos for partners and for women to work together. So they can find all the information on my website that's called Bonapache. So Bonapache is an Italian word that means good peace. Uh, so I guess I was destined to have this role in facilitating couples and uh, helping them be uh, in peace. So that's B-O-N-A-P-A-C dot com. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much for being on the show today and sharing all this great information. And thank you, Adriana, for the great work that you're doing to make birth happier and safer. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Expectful. To best support this podcast, support its sponsors and get free goodies and offers while you're at it. Go to expectful.com slash birth to sign up for your free two-week trial. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Also, the Birthful Podcast is part of the Parents on Demand Network. Find out more at parentsondemand.com. I'm Adriana Losada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.